This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm the executive director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. So coming up on today's show, we're going to be talking about being an adult in a very particular way financially. In other words, financial adulting and why our relationship with money is just so darn complicated. Figure this topic is always relevant, never mind in an era of inflation and financial concern. And then there's tax day just around the corner. So this feels especially timely. You know, people of all ages are struggling with how to manage a personal budget, mounting debt and inflation. And my guest today, Ashley Feinstein Gersley, challenged herself to get a better grasp on her finances and started blogging about everything from 401k accounts to buying a house. That website, The Fiscal Femme, launched her career as a money coach, speaker, and author of The 30-Day Money Cleanse and her amazing new book, Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. Which, by the way, all those students graduating, awesome graduation gift. I'm just saying. So, Ashley, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful intro. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. There's a little bit more I want to you know, share about you because you're kind of amazing. Um, so Ashley founded the Fiscal Femme, which is a feminist money platform and has helped thousands of people feel financially confident, achieve major financial goals and de-stress their relationships with money. She's appeared on or been quoted in the Financial Times, the Today Show, CNBC, Forbes, NBC, Glamour and the New York Times. Ashley's worked in the financial services industry for over 15 years, first as an investment banker, then in corporate finance, and most recently running the Fiscal Femme. And not for nothing, she's an alumna. She graduated with a bachelor's in finance from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So first, welcome home, Ashley. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, a nice welcome home. I'm glad. So here's the thing. You knew more about money than most people. What brought you to this topic? Because it wasn't just to help others, was it? No, it started because I needed it myself, which I know is a common reason people start businesses. But <laughs> I I worked in investment banking. My first job, I was making a really good salary, getting those bonuses, working a ton of hours. And so I really didn't have a lot of time to spend the money I was making. And so things were not going too poorly financially. But when I switched to my corporate finance job, I took a pay cut in order to have a better lifestyle and had a lot of free time. And I was in New York City. I hadn't seen friends in a long time, hadn't done all the activities that I wanted to do. And I just started bleeding through money. That's such a great word for it. Yes, exactly. And there's that feeling like things aren't going well. I have a feeling, but I haven't actually looked. And so... It was this moment when I looked at my bank account, I saw I'd quit my investment banking job the day after I got my bonus. And it was $70,000, which was 35,000 probably after taxes. And it was gone in three months in my new job. And I thought, you know what, if I if I really want to stay in this job, I have to figure out, I have to figure out my personal finances. And that started with becoming aware and budgeting and all the things and and it's it's funny, I was working, it was right when life coaching was becoming a, a something that was more common and a friend of a friend recommended a friend who needed hours and she challenged me to share what I was learning on a blog because that was something that was very terrifying to me to have a voice <laughs> and to share what I was learning. What if I changed what I thought or I said something stupid? So she, that was really where the, it came from, this challenge to share what I was learning. I'm so glad she challenged you and that you you rose to the occasion. Um, but what you're describing is interesting because in, in some obvious ways and then I think in ways that are you know, woven into the book and the way that you approach this. So um, you were managing other people's money professionally to some extent. But it sounds like you were you had the privilege and the good fortune to have enough money that you didn't have to track it on a regular basis. But as soon as you had a transition into a different kind of stage of life, a different situation, um, 
you didn't step into it aware of just how unwieldy it could get how fast. Is that a fair thing to say? Very fair. I so and I wasn't exa- I wasn't managing people's money. I was an industrials banker, so I was helping industrials companies with mergers, acquisitions, doing IPOs. So it wasn't it was corp it was essentially creating budgets for companies which definitely lends itself to our personal finances in a lot of ways, but it I never had made that connection. You know, I have to confess, I have always I've had a career starting new programs. I'm always building budgets and managing budgets. And for the first half of my career, I found I understood it in concept, but it was a very abstracted exercise. It's not related to am I turning right and going to the grocery store to buy ingredients to cook dinner? Am I turning left and going out to dinner? And oh, I'll have a drink and I'll leave a nice tip. And because I turned left, I spent $60 on one meal instead of $60 on five. Yes. (laughs) Very great way to describe it. (laughs) And so how bad did it get before you realized you needed to get back in the driver's seat? So there is, it was interesting. It definitely is a journey. And I think just like you mentioned that things were working, then they weren't. And that's the good news and the bad news about financial adulting is that we're never done. You never have all the answers. You've never created the perfect budget. Our lives are always changing. The economy is changing. Our goals are changing. And so it's something that we just are always going to want to look at and pay attention to and adjust But it's also a positive thing because it doesn't mean that we have to know everything and never make mistakes and um, kind of had this arrival point. So it was interesting. My journey, the first kind of mishap was this overspending. But then I also got my first credit card and made mistakes there. And then I took a coworker's investment advice and lost a lot of money. So I tend I I had a (laughs) lot of mistakes along the way, not all at once, but one of the things I was very excited about with the fiscal femme is I was able to share those mistakes, be really honest, like about what happened so that other people didn't have to make those same mistakes that I did. So tell me about the 30 day money cleanse. What is it? How did you develop it? The 30 day money cleanse, it actually originated as a program that I ran for five years before it became a book. And what I noticed at, I was working with, so the blog started, I was sharing my journey. People started asking me for help saying, can you help me with my finances? And other sites asked me to write for them. So I was doing one-on-one coaching for individuals. And I started to notice that I was saying a lot of the same things over and over again. And it didn't matter their age. It didn't matter how much they were earning. Um, just so many of the things that we were doing were similar. And I thought, you know what, if I created a program, I could help a lot more people than with my individual time. And so that's where the money cleanse was born. And it, I call it a cleanse because I do think there's a lot of similarities between food and money because they're very emotionally charged and they're, 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 they're complicated. A lot goes into them. And so the money cleanse is like a good food cleanse in that it sets you up for a healthier money lifestyle. So very much focused on creating a spending plan or a budget and our money mindset. And it takes you through, it's colorful and it has workbook components. And so I noticed when I was going through my own journey that a lot of the resources were kind of boring and daunting and felt intimidating. And that's definitely changed over the last 12 years that I've been doing this, which is great. But um, I wanted it to be a lot more accessible and something that someone who didn't necessarily pay attention to their finances felt comfortable picking up. And one of the things you did in the opening of the new book, um, Financial Adulting, I was really touched by it, was um, you talked about your own privilege and how um, your recognition that your experience is not everyone else's experience. How did you become sensitized to that? And how does that shape the way that you wrote the book? Yes. And that was a big shift from my first book to the second book. The first book I wrote from a lot of from my perspective And in the second book, I interviewed people who came from different expertises and backgrounds. And I I, I guess where it came from was working with a lot of different people and seeing that they all had very different circumstances. And it's really ran the gamut how that applied to their finances. And then the more I learned, the more I saw that our identities impact every area of our finances and they're interrelated. So 
if I earn less because I'm a woman and then I have to spend more because of the pink tax, then I'll also have to take out more debt and I won't have enough as much to save for retirement. And I also will probably live longer. And so it's the more I looked at it, the more you can't take that piece out and talk about personal finance. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And I'm talking today with Ashley Feinstein-Gersley, a money coach, author, and founder of The Fiscal Femme. So Ashley, there are a couple things there that I I really want to dive into. Um, So one is um, the pink tax. Explain more about what that is. Yes. So the pink tax is essentially paying more for the same things just because <laughs> we're, they're targeted towards women. And um, I want to actually get the exact number for you, but it, it ends up costing women a lot of money. So it costs the average woman $2,294 in 2023. And is that just the markup on products that are packaged for women? Or is it also all the nonsense or things that we think of as essential as women to put ourselves together every day? So I actually think it's really just the markup. Okay, That's (laughs) appalling. I was reading, it was, I think, a consumer report from New York, and it was showing, and they've rectified this since, but like a pink Razor scooter for a girl had a 30% markup from the other colors. And so it's it's that type of thing mm-hmm. or a the the soap that is marketed with the right. more feminine fragrance is more expensive or the razors. Women's or the, razors, right. Exactly. Um so and if you think about first of all, $2300 is a lot of money. Like there are a lot of things that I would want to do with that each year, but then if we invested that over time, that would be over $100,000 in in 20 years. That's astonishing. That's really that 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 drives it home in a in a much different way. So yes. with um, it sounds like whether or not we have the privilege of having been raised with money um, or we're struggling to earn our own money for the first time, everyone, it sounds like there's no protection from having a complicated relationship with money. Is this what you're finding with people? Yes. I mean, if we think about it, and one of the reasons I really find it, I actually dove into this in both books, because we have a lot working against us. And I think it's helpful to understand what we have working against us so we can be a little bit more compassionate for ourselves when we make mistakes. And so if you think about, if we're just thinking about everyone, most of us, especially in my generation and the generations before, we didn't learn about personal finance in school. Mm -hmm. It was often taboo to talk about. I know a lot of my clients will say, you know, the, I remember the first time I asked a money question and I was completely shot down. Like, we don't talk about that. That's not polite. Um, and it's then when we get our first internship jobs, it's something that we have to deal with almost every single day, yet we weren't set up for success. And then we talk about how thinking about marketing budgets and companies that are now so skilled at having us need something that we didn't even know existed um, <laughs> right. one minute ago. And then you add all the components of, you know, the the earnings gaps and discrimination and in interest rates. And so there's so much to it. And I think having an idea of all those things that are working against us can make us have more compassion and realize no wonder we're making some mistakes in this area. And when we have all those things working against us, um, I know for me, at least, um, I see a pattern of it creating a a sense of being overwhelmed, Um, that the worse that it gets, the more that this has happened to me at different points, and I see it with others, um, you want to just run away from it and hide, um, because it just can seem so daunting. Um, And for some parts of the population, it's much worse than others, because it's not just an individual problem. There are systemic and societal reasons why money is so hard. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what are the challenges from a societal perspective before we talk about what we do from an individual perspective? Yes. So I would say when we're talking about relationship and money, like you mentioned, that is there's definitely impact from society because a lot of times the personal finance spaces and these investing spaces have been created for and by older white men. So we feel like we feel like they're not, the products are not created for us. And that might keep us from 
wanting to come in. Like I mentioned, those books that are written for people that I was like, this is not, this is not written for me. Um, so I think that is where it interacts with our relationship with money. But I would say if we're talking about wealth gaps, so this is actually looking at how much wealth people have right now or in the last couple of years, um, there is a racial wealth gap. The average white family has a median net worth of 188.2,000 and black families have $24.1,000 in wealth, 36.1 for Hispanic families and 74.5 for other groups. And there's also a gender wealth gap. So for there's women own 32 cents for every dollar a white man owns. And that is compounded if you are a black woman or a Latina, and that goes down to two cents and one cent. And so I think you can go back to history and look at policies and enslavement. And, you know, in the book, I, I do a quick history lesson. There's mm-hmm. entire books that are dedicated to explaining these, the policies that have led to these large gaps, including one I talk about is the Homestead Act, where it was around 10% of U.S. land was given away at a discount to mostly white people. And there was the fall of the Freedman Savings Bank, which was a, a savings bank predominantly with Black customers. Um, but I think the main societal changes where we can go now, and this was definitely something that I learned a lot about in interviewing people for my book, because this is something that I was learning a lot more about, um, is raising the minimum minimum wage, mm-hmm. two-thirds of women, um, or two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women and 25% are women of color, um, canceling all or some of student loan debt because two-thirds of all student loan debt is held by women, um, upping taxes on the super wealthy, mandating pay, paid leave because caregiving responsibilities disproportionately fall on women, affordable high-quality childcare, um, building a system for that, reforming healthcare because medical expenses are the number one cause of personal bankruptcy, potentially paying reparations um, for those historical inequities, and then also bringing more people into the cause because, and um, this was a quote or an idea that was brought up in an interview with Linda Scott. Um, and she mentioned that this really should be a bipartisan issue that we should be treating men and women equally because that is what's decent and what we're taught all of our lives to do. So this is this shouldn't be um, something that's considered like left or liberal that really all women and all people could get behind this these this this idea of solving inequities. Right. This isn't philosophy. This is the reality of people's economics and well-being. And you you won't be surprised, like that list that you've run down. I think we've done at least one show on every single one of those topics because they're so important and complex and they really need attention. They have this profound impact on women's lives and pocketbooks. Um, So given that making these societal changes is clearly taking a while, um, I think yeah, that comes to, yeah, it comes back to the importance of what we can do personally and how we can gain control of our own finances. So before we talk about the tactical, practical things, um, what do, where do we need to be emotionally to start that process? What do we have to look at or recognize about ourselves? It's a very good question. I think something you mentioned, and it's also when, you know, when I go through that list of the systemic issues that need to be solved. It's another situation where there's so many things that you might want to go put your head in the sand and, you know, not take a look at this. And the same with our personal finances. So I really think a huge part of this is facing it um, and taking a look. And I know that there can be this feeling that it's a lot less stressful to not look and not know because then we can pretend everything is fine. But we actually... I think 99% of the time, I really can't think of one situation where someone took a look at their expenses or took a look at what different credit cards they had and didn't feel that they had more control and more power. Because until we know what's going on, there's really nothing that we can do about it. We say all the time, you can't manage what you don't measure. Exactly. But it feels, I think it feels stressful to not know, to just be wondering and assuming I know it's not looking good, but I, I really don't know how bad things it, look. It feels to me, and this is also revealing stuff about me personally, but it's not unlike getting on the scale. 
that I can think the clothes shrunk in the wash or I just like happen to be bloated. But in reality, like if I get on the scale, I'm all of a sudden going to get a number that's going to explain why none of my jeans fit. Right. And that's, not a, are, yeah. and that's not a problem that I can stop overnight. Right. But I can change direction overnight. Definitely. Similar thing, right? That's so, yes, very similar. What advice do you have for that really scary first step to prepare ourselves to open like and I've seen it in a number of different ways, whether it's opening the envelopes that are piling up on the kitchen counter, opening up the bank statement, looking at the bank account online, really digging in to see what's going on. Like, is there a mantra? Do we breathe deeply? Do you just like put a bag of cookies next to you and inhale it while you do this and go into debt for something else while you're there? What advice do you have for taking that very first step? And honestly, there are so many ways that someone can do this. And there there are numerous strategies. And I think one of the big things, and it actually applies to the scale too, is we don't have to overhaul everything overnight. I think there's this idea like, oh, I listened to this podcast and now I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to spend the whole weekend and do everything. And as soon as I make one mistake, you know, I'm out. And I think the first step is, is the biggest thing. And it's okay to break that step down further. If you've noticed there's a step you want to take and you haven't taken that, is there a way to make it more manageable, make it even smaller so that it is something that you can feel like you can do and then you get that win and then you keep going. I think another thing that can be really helpful, and I'm a huge proponent of this uh, concept called money parties. And money parties are time we put in the calendar to deal with our finances. And it, the cookies reminded me of this because I call them a party for a reason. We want to make it something that we look forward to. We can have our favorite beverage or our favorite snack, or I have a money party playlist that I am happy to share <laughs> with songs all about money that pump you up about money. Um, or you can reward yourself after. So putting time in the calendar because our schedules get busy and it's very easy to put off looking at your expenses or setting up your IRA or whatever those money to do's are that pile up. And then also for for people where personal finance is stressful, it compartmentalizes it a little bit. Mm. Like, oh, instead of screaming over to my <laughs> husband, like, what happened with the Amex this month? It's like, oh, we'll talk about it at the money party. So we'll set this tone to be very kind to each other and talk about it then, um, rather than having it seep in um, to our day-to-day all the time. To, re- to connect what you're saying to some other things that we've talked about before. So one is, it sounds like, Um, In the same way that if we were training to run a road race, whether it's a 5K or a marathon, you don't just wake up and say, oh, I'm going to run a marathon today. You chunk it out over many months, and then your first three miles is actually an accomplishment. Your first four miles is your next accomplishment, and you do it in pieces over time. And so it sounds like a similar approach. Like, Don't expect you to be where you want to be the first step you take. Yes. And I think it's a very big shift and something that I thought when I was starting my money journey is that some people are just born and good at this. And I'm not one of those people. And I found that no one is. This is a skill. You have to have a growth mindset like any other skill that we get better at it over time. And as hard as it is to not punish ourselves when we make a mistake, maybe there has to be a little of that like, oh, why did you do that? But then taking that deep breath you mentioned and thinking, okay, where did this go wrong? What can I do? Set myself up for success next time when I'm about to turn right and I want to turn left um, or wherever that, wherever that issue is coming up to play a little bit of detective to set, to think about what can I do to set myself up for success next time and really growing from the mistakes we made and not trying to avoid them altogether because still make them. And so unfortunately, I feel like that's just part of the financial adulting journey. So there's a companion book that I think would be a great thing to read alongside of this. And it's Katie Milkman's book. I think it's called How to Change. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of Katie's research has pointed out, one, the brilliance of the money party. She calls it temptation bundling, that if you get to read the really cheesy romance novel only when you're at the gym, you'll go to the gym in order to like get the next chapter. And that 
giving yourself, making something fun and a reward around this time of dealing with money. And just like going to the gym is hard, you're going to sweat, things may not go the way that you want. Um, Also to be prepared that as we embark on this process, um, part of why we're going to try and make it fun and try and make it um, positive is because we're going to have to face some challenges and learn things along the way. We need to be kind to ourselves when we do that. Yes. And it's so funny because someone shared in one of my workshops that he was his favorite food's ice cream and he's only going to eat ice cream at money parties. Oh, so that's great. Committed <laughs> to the temptation bundling. <laughs> I really love that. How often do you have your money parties? I have them once a month. And I think that's like a great cadence. But if someone wants to have them more frequently, they can be shorter. So if, I do find that if you have them more often, you're you're checking in on your spending, you have better grasp on what's going on, and you might spend less. Um, And they can be shorter. So it's really about what works for you. Or if you'd rather have them less frequently, but they're a little bit longer then the month works well. I find I started my version of a money party every Saturday morning. And when it's done, I'm like, Oh, I feel like I just ran five miles. And I am more in touch with what's going on. It makes a big difference. Um, We unfortunately need to take a short break, but don't go away. We're going to be right back. And when I am, we'll continue the conversation with Ashley Feinstein-Gersley, a personal finance expert, speaker, and author of Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. Um, I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Ashley Feinstein-Gersley. She's a personal finance expert, speaker, and the author of Financial Adulting and the 30-Day Money Cleanse. She founded the Fiscal Fem, a feminist money platform that has helped thousands of people feel financially confident, achieve major financial goals, and de-stress their relationship with money. So, Ashley, thanks so much for being here with us. In the first half hour of the conversation, one of the things that we were we were talking about early on was how money can be quite abstract to us. And um, I'm going to date myself, but when I first came to college and opened up my first checking account, I remember my dad took me actually to Mellon Bank, which is now the Ritz-Carlton on Broad Street, and... Um, there was this amazing thing that I never had before, which was this little plastic card, and I could put it in a hole in the wall, and I could press these buttons on the wall, and the wall would spit out money. And now we have, and and I got to tell you, between that and this little book of papers where I could write my name and people gave me stuff, it it got me exactly where you would expect as an 18-year-old. So we have a whole generation, though, that's grown up with debit cards, credit cards, credit cards that are available really early. Um How is that kind of, it's no longer cash that you put in a coffee can that's labeled vacation and my first car. How does this, how does technology and the way we experience money now hurt and help our ability to manage our finances? It's a really great question. And it's technology has helped so many things, but for most of us, it feels a lot more painful to hand over 10, $20 bills for a pair of jeans and to swipe a credit card. And that probably also dates me because there might be some people <laughs> who have never done that. <laughs> right. Um, but there are also people, and this is why it's so personal, that they actually feel like once they take cash out of an ATM that it's monopoly money. It's like, I've already taken it out of the bank account, so it feels fake to them. So it's important to know which one you are. Um, but I do think for many of us, technology has taken away that pain of paying or that consciousness that the money is leaving our hands. And Oh, please, how about at like two o'clock in the morning when I have insomnia and I'm shopping online and I just click purchase and it's like, oh, we remember you. Right. Information saved. I know. And even if you take like a shared ride, a Lyft or Uber, there's no paying. There's you're just hitting the button or, um, you know, Amazon also super easy boxes just show up at your door and your Amazon <laughs> locker. So it's very easy to spend money. And I think that makes it. And now also with subscriptions, it's just it's not the, a, a lot of it. And I think that's why it's so important to have those money parties is to reconnect to what is actually going out of our accounts, because we'll see that 
credit card balance or our bank account balance and think, what happened this month? Where did that money go? So is there, what's the upside of it? Because I know that there are ways that I'm using technology that I've found enormously helpful, like automatic bill pay. What are the things that you would recommend for people as they're starting this process that can help them get control of things? So a few things that I think are helpful for a lot of people, I'm a big proponent of having our checking and our savings account separate. So I love high yield savings accounts because first of all, right now they're earning some nice interests and they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. These are completely online banks. So there is that technological component that we didn't have before. So when you Um, say that they're separate, I just want to clarify this. It's um, so that like my checking account has my savings account as the backup in case it's overdrawn. That's a don't do that. Separate them. So you could still have that for some savings, but I do think it's so easy to transfer that money over or have the checking account just take the money if it needs that for most of us, there are some unicorns. I've definitely worked with clients that somehow save a lot of money in the savings attached to their checking, but it's so much easier to get the money away. And it's still yours. You can have it in a couple of days if you need it, but you almost forget about it there. Mm-hmm. And it, so I really think that separation can be very helpful. So it sounds like part of it is putting up barriers and boundaries for ourselves. Yes, protecting ourselves from ourselves. Yes, exactly. The thing I love that's that's a it's it's kind of technology is actually bucketing out our savings. Tell me more. It's, very, it's easy to some a place we get in trouble a lot is mental accounting. So we think you know if you're getting a tax refund, you think of all the ways you're going to spend it. We might spend some of our money multiple times in our head, even though unfortunately <laughs> we can only spend it once. So if I have my rainy day fund, I find that really helpful to be separate from my travel fund or separate from my kids' camp fund because otherwise it's hard to know. It's like this blob that I'm not really sure what's supposed to be used for what, and it can feel confusing and unclear and also guilty when I spend that money for something that I've planned for. So um I saw, I've gone through this, I saw my daughter go through this, Um, also saw how uh, many credit card applications came her way the minute she became a college student. Um, Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for how we set our kids up for the first time that they're handling money? Yes. So I notice that a lot of parents don't talk to their kids about money. And I don't think that it's, I think they're a lot of times when I talk to them about it, they say, who am I to teach them about money? I don't know enough and I'm not an expert. I don't want them to learn from me. But even sharing as we go in our mistakes can teach our kids so much. And it also shows we're human and normalizes the conversation around money and mistakes. And so I think regardless of where you are, it is so helpful to just be talking about money with our kids and allowing them to ask questions and talking about what things cost. and learning how to budget. So how to put money towards certain things and then, oh, I need more money in a few weeks for this certain thing is a skill that is really, really powerful and important that um, will benefit them forever. And with credit cards, they are a valuable tool. I think I have a love-hate relationship because (laughs) sometimes you need a lifeline and you get points and they're very easy and there's it's great for fraud and you can carry them around and um you don't have to have cash but at the same time how they work is that you don't actually feel the pain of overspending until you have to pay the bill right and you don't feel all the benefit of that i didn't spend as much until it's time to pay the bill so it's kind of like this delayed punishment delayed gratification (laughs) Um, So I'm a fan of paying it off more frequently to just have our bank accounts be a more accurate reflection of what we're spending. So that is one way we can use our credit cards um, to actually pay them off as more quickly than once a month or more frequently than once a month so that we don't get in a situation where we think, oh, I didn't mean to, but I've overextended and now I can't pay it. It sounds like the theme through a lot of these is to make what we're spending concrete and visible so that we're not just like, oh, I have money coming in, I can go shopping and I can go out to dinner and I can book a vacation, but rather to say, I have $5,000 coming in and I want to do five things that cost $5,000, so how am I gonna make some decisions? Right. And to 
pay bill and to pay things as we spend them, not just when the bill comes in. So we're not getting detached from our spending habits and their impact. Right. Okay. So maybe this is another vote for the weekly money party. Right. It really, I think the weekly money party, you'll notice that after two weeks, that second week doesn't look as good as that first week of spending. <laughs> right after you do it is when you're, you're, you're doing your most intentional spending. Um, so one of the things you talked about in the book are SMART goals, capital S-M-A-R-T. What are those? So SMART goals are turning vague goals into something that is more specific. So the SMART stands for specific. So you're describing the goal, that it's measurable, So with money goals, that's typically the amount. And A is attainable. Is it possible? Is the outcome in your control? As opposed to if I spend this money, I will be happy. True. Yes. (laughs) That is a great example. Also, um, my my partner won't do this. Something (laughs) that that we have. Money's not going to solve that problem. (laughs) Yeah, it's very true. Relevant. So is it actually worthwhile? And I think that's something... um, that's just an important general topic to think about with our money is that are we doing things because it's what other people are doing? It's what we think we should be doing, or is it actually something that we want? And that's like a more step back strategic brainstorming journaling mm-hmm. session. But is this like, is this actually something that I am willing to work towards and then making it time bound? So by when will you achieve that goal? So to give an example, um, save more money, which is, a goal for many people, but is very vague, could turn into, I'm putting $3,000 towards my rainy day fund, and I'm going to do this by setting aside $250 per month. Okay. Yeah, it's similar how I prepared for my daughter's first year at college. And the second and the third and the fourth, but it was um, how to start to think about what I could do in regular intervals and to do it, knowing why I was doing it, how long I needed to do it for, and it made a big difference. Yes. And I think that's another thing with money and investing for longer term goals. Sometimes it's sometimes hard to know what something will cost. When you're when you have a young kid, you don't know what college is going to cost. You don't know how, but it's always better to have something mm-hmm. than to not do it because you don't know the exact you don't know how the market will grow. You don't know if they're going to do private or public or if they're going to college or um, so you'll always be happier if you've set money aside versus not because same with a vacation. Just because I don't know exactly what it's going to cost doesn't mean I I can't start saving for that. But doesn't it also then create a situation? um, College is a a hyper intense example, but I think vacation is a really good one of you start off by saying, okay, I'm going to save $500 a month. I want to do this so that I can go on a $5,000 vacation. Um, that should be attainable. It should take about 10 months to get there. Um, this seems relevant because I haven't gone on a vacation in a long time. I need both the rest and the adventure. Um, and you get there and you find out that $5,000 doesn't do for you what it did before. But at the very least, you have a budget to work with, right? Right. And I typically will work towards it. Like I will think about, okay, what do I think the flight will cost? So really breaking it down. So it's not, oh, a $5,000 vacation, but how much do I want to spend per night on my accommodations? Do I want to have a daily salary kind of for fun spending? Um, Am I going to be eating similarly to when I'm at home or do I want money, extra money for dining out? Um, estimating the flight you know you won't know exactly what the flight will cost but maybe we can estimate an international flight will be more than if i'm flying to um a close by state or something like that so as trying as best you can to guesstimate and then anytime you have more information updating the plan so as soon as you know what the flight will cost great update the plan does that really mess up does that take up more than i was expecting and now i need to adjust or save more it's just better to adjust and have that information. And maybe you can make up for it. And maybe you can't and you'll have to lower spending in another area. So let me share an exercise I did with my daughter. Tell me like how I did this and where we could have done this better. But it felt pretty good. If only because it was one of the few times she was like, Mom, this is cool. So she wanted to get her um, she wanted to look at living off campus. 
and um, came in, mom, mom, apartment, it's only X dollars. So I was like, but there's other things to think about. And I got like that look like, really? And she like, she kind of knew, but it wasn't concrete to her. And so I built a little Excel spreadsheet with all of the things that factor into like there's rent and there's the electric bill and the gas bill and cable and Wi-Fi. And, you know, is there snow removal? And does somebody rake the leaves? Now, you know, campus housing, off-campus housing, you don't necessarily have all of those, but it was like, these are the things that you have to think about when you take on a commitment like this. And so we started plugging in numbers and estimates, and I showed her, like, if you change this number, you can see how it calculates. So if the rent is $500, here's what that happens. Here's how it results. If you're the only Mm -hmm. tenant, if there are three tenants, this is how it plays out. And aside from the fact that it seemed like a sneaky way to get her to find the love for Excel, um, she said it was really helpful. And it was interesting that she waited a year before pursuing off-campus housing. And I think part of it was she grasped the reality of the financial responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like, did I do it wrong? Right? What could I have done better? No, I think that's great. And I think you did it well. Yeah, from my perspective, I think you did an incredible job of explaining the choice and what that would look like and comparing the two scenarios. I think it's so interesting. I feel like sometimes we we treat these really big financial decisions that will have implications for her probably for at least the whole year. We want to just get them done, move on, but <laughs> right. taking the time to sit down and say, here was what this actually means financially compared to this other scenario. And it's worth taking the time to look into it to talk it through because that will that will create more room for for other financial goals or other spending or it's just not workable so um, it can save so much stress to take the time to do that and she can now replicate that exercise for other choices which is that's what we're hoping i think she can do it though she's a smart cookie um but you know, there's also one of the things you mentioned is the anxiety that happens when you don't get this stuff right and you find that you've made a decision and you're living with it and it's and it can become unmanageable or deny you other things in your life. Um, there's so much anxiety that comes with financial decision making. Some of that, so much of that it's our, is our own, but there's also a landscape that there, we're in that's making us all much more anxious about money. So how are you seeing the current landscape when it's coming to debt and inflation? And what do we do about this to protect ourselves? Yes. So I think it's one thing to make a plan when things are pretty rosy, right? Like, how much money do I want in my rainy day when I'm feeling super confident in my job, like the economy's booming? We might change our tune a little bit when we see our friends getting laid off and think, actually, is that enough? If this were to actually happen to me, is that enough? So I think definitely, I have definitely seen a lot more financial anxiety in the current landscape. I've definitely experienced it as an, you know, an elder millennial. I graduated in the Great Recession, um, so saw so much impact on the job market and people's retirement and financial stress. And um, so I, I that has definitely made me more conservative with my finances in general, wanting to have more savings. So I'd say in a you know, we can't worry away issues, but noticing that worry is a great time to check in and see, are we, you know, recession ready? If, um, do I have enough money in my rainy day? Do I want to pay down some of my high interest credit card if um, debt, if I can, do I want to look at an exercise that I find can reduce anxiety is to say, okay, if X, Y, Z were to happen, here's what I would do with my expenses. Here's where I would let go of expenses. I like to say let go instead of cut because it, oh, you know, it's, and it feels more empowered. Yes. This is a choice. It's not getting like ripped from my hands. Um, so I think that could be a really helpful exercise. Like if I need to pull this, this lever because I lost my job, here's what that would look like. Here's what my spending would look like. Here's how long my savings would last. So those types of conversations and just the exercise, almost like what you walk through with your daughter, but just a, a different spreadsheet, different scenarios to um, to give ourselves some comfort or some realignment of our goals as we're feeling more anxious. It's not unlike the way that I used to pack the mom bag. Like I left the house and I never left without a diaper, wipes, crayons and paper and a snack and something to drink. 
Like it's just there was no going out in the world without those things. But and it made me feel like I could deal with whatever was going to happen. And so it sounds like what you're advising is that we, especially as the economy around us gets riskier or our own work environments or life situations, that we take a look at how do we pack our own mommy bag? How do we look for the tools that we have at our disposal to make ourselves safer um, and to stop the bleeding if it's getting bad? Right. Right. What are my essentials? Exactly. No one needs to get angry on the go. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Ashley Feinstein Gersley. She's a personal finance expert, speaker, and author of Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. So one of the other places where I like to see some confidence grow is in negotiations. And, you know, yes, well, we're all worried about getting laid off. And a lot of people have our hope is that soon they will be negotiating for new jobs or a raise within their given jobs. So what advice do you have for how we approach salary negotiations, especially when we're not feeling like we're in the power seat, when we're anxious, when we need the job, when we need the money? One of the biggest reframes in negotiating for me has been that it's I used to view negotiating, especially for compensation, as this like once a year conversation where I sit down, I come with my notes and I'm like, I, you know, ready to ask for more. But I've started to view it as a year round conversation because it's not then a surprise to our manager that we're looking to get promoted, not that they would assume we're not, but just like what our goals are. We're sharing what our goals are. We're sharing what our comp goals are. We're year round checking in about what kind of projects we like, what we want to be doing more of, um, so that we're almost getting them in our corner and on our team so that and providing them with the information that they need to get go up the ranks to get what we need happening. So that's something that's been um, that I think about like at least once a quarter, but even more frequently sharing wins, sharing things that have happened um, positively. So- managers. Um, There's a group of amazing researchers out of Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, Lisa Vesterlin and Linda Babcock are two of them. They wrote this book called The No Club um, about non-promotable tasks at work. And Mm -hmm. um, we did a show recently with them and um, talked about how we can get sucked into um, all of these things at work that are important for the team or important for the organization, but in no way help us advance. Things like mentoring. That's never part of the calculation of whether you're getting a raise. Because it doesn't move the bottom line for the organization. So it sounds like what you're recommending by having these conversations throughout the year is actually helping you, would help us each stay aligned with what are the promotable tasks that our employer expects from us and making our employer aware of the fact that we are advancing them under their guidance. Am I tracking? Yes. And like, if you think about it, like super simply, like, hey, what do I need to get promoted? Here's the list of things. And then sharing as you do them throughout the year. Right. So it's very. <laughs> it's giving very them a budget clear. in a way and holding them accountable. Right. And I do think, too, um, like knowing your market rate, um, talking about comp with with colleagues, just to know if you are in the realm of what is the market rate for your job is another just low hanging fruit to understand for that conversation. But I think this is particularly hard for women. Like you said, so many women are socialized not to talk about money. It's not polite. Um, It's, you know, it it can create a tension. How do you suggest that we open up those conversations and make a safe place for them, for ourselves and other people? Yes. So I think that there's two parts of this. One is just the discomfort in asking for things, which I have and still do. Um, So I have made it a point to practice negotiating when the stakes are low. And mm. it could be like, I'm at the dry cleaner. This is a great, like, what is this price? Can we talk about the price for this? Or just, we don't realize that we're negotiating all day, every day. Even if you have a roommate and they're not doing the dishes, it could be an uncomfortable conversation. Hey, do you mind doing the dishes more? I noticed you haven't done them as frequently as as half the time. So <laughs> using those opportunities where it's not actually the conversation with your manager or boss that are more low stakes, but we're there's something that we want, it's not happening, or we're trying to get this other person to do something maybe they don't want to do. And so we're asking. And I think that's, that's a great way to, um, to practice that uncomfortable 
practice the uncomfortable conversation. Ashley, I love that you put this in the context of the uncomfortable conversation. Because while there's strategies to negotiation, for sure, um, I think at the heart of it is we don't know how to sit with that conflict and that discomfort. Right. And so much of it is having the conversation, which we avoid if because it's uncomfortable. Um, and I do think there are ways as we're, because again, we don't have to get comfortable with asking the person next to us about what their salary is, if that feels totally, and it depends on the culture of the company too. That could be something that just doesn't work. But I find it can be a little bit easier to ask somebody who used to be in the role, maybe mm. recently, because they're not necessarily, I think we tend to conflate our income with our worth. And that can make it oh, yeah. really tough to share what we earn. Because if I'm sharing with my friend and she makes more than me, then now I feel like I'm lesser. And then if I share and I'm making more than I feel bad that I made her feel bad. Um, so I, I really think that's an important thing to think about is really our income is what our current job is being paid in the market. It's not our value as a person. Um, but because that can be such a tricky conversation, it can be helpful to ask someone who was in the role, maybe they just got promoted or they just left the company. Hey, I'm really trying to figure out if I'm getting paid fairly. I want to know, would you be open to sharing what you earned in that role? And they're not sharing what they currently earn. So it could be a little bit easier. So we only have a couple minutes left. Very briefly. Um, how do we, it's hard enough to get ourselves to deal with our own money. How do we do this with our partners? Any quick advice that you can give us for how we can navigate this, especially the difficult conversations with the people we live with? Yes. So I would say start with the fun part. So start by talking about what you want to build, what you're what your goals are, because that's really the whole point of money. And then you're kind of, you can have goals that are together and some that are your own, but it's the thing that will get us excited to take the action. And then I also think talking about where they come from around money can be really beneficial. Like what was their family like with money? What was, what were some of their early money memories because, or what are their fears? Because that can tend to really impact the conversation. And we might not realize that they're so stressed about spending because this happened when they were a child or, and it can help us have a little more compassion for each other in those conversations. Yeah. So no matter how practical and tactical we get, the emotions are present through all of this. Yes. Sounds like we need to stay sensitive to that, but not let it get in the way of becoming practical and tactical about it. So Ashley, it's so much fun to talk to you and there's so much to learn from you. Um, For our listeners who want to learn more, where can they find you, the books, all your stuff? Yes, you can find everything at thefiscalfem.com. And then I'm also on all the social medias pretty much at The Fiscal Femme. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us and for the work you're doing. Thank you. It's been really fun. And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. Also, thanks, as always, to my fantastic team, Kara Pogue, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone, and value your money. Take care. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.